I think UA is kind of underrated in sort of the game validation, concept validation process. Thank you very much. My work <laughs> here is done. <laughs> I, I'm only saying this because uh, Matei gives me shots afterwards, so. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hi there, listener, and welcome to the second episode of the Metacast, the show in which we explore the business of video games. I am your host, Nico, and today I am joined by Janie Perissini, Matei Lancharic, Florian Ziegler, and Abhimanyu Kumar. In this episode, we are discussing why player networks are the new UA in a post-IDFA world, and we are talking about UA as a tool to validate a game concept. And... We have some amazing panelists with us today, some new voices on the podcast. So before we get into the topics, let's get to know each other a little bit. First of all, I'd like to welcome Janie Perissini, joining us from San Francisco. Janie has more than 15 years of experience in the gaming industry, working at companies like Glue, Reddit, Machine Zone and DraftKings. She now serves as a Senior Director of Growth Marketing at EA, and she's also Executive Client Council Member at Snap. Janie, warm welcome to the show. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. I've been looking forward to this and uh, preparing, training myself. (laughs) (laughs) Super. So Janie, what uh, do you find most interesting in the gaming industry? What do you enjoy talking about? Anything right now. I think the IDFA stuff is interesting. I think blockchain with gaming has been an interesting conversation and been really excited to see a bunch of projects happen on on blockchain uh, mm-hmm. for kind of showcasing the technology. So um, that's what I love about gaming is that it changes so often, so drastically. And so, yeah, so I think that's the biggest one um, that mm-hmm. I've I've been excited to to talk about and watch. Yeah, we, we plan on, on discussing crypto and blockchain with games uh, in particular pretty soon because it feels like gaming as a whole, whenever there's a new special technology, it feels like gaming is one of the fastest you know adopters of, of these kinds of technologies. So that's pretty cool indeed. All right. And so, Janie, what game are you currently playing, if any? Yeah, I'm uh, a mix. Puzzle Combat, UFC, and then my kids take my phone. So a lot of Coco Melon and YouTube Kids and... Just <laughs> bubble things and fish all over my phone. So nice. those are the main things. Cool. Super great to have you. Next, I, I'd like to welcome Florian Ziegler, joining us from Berlin. Florian has been designing games for more than 15 years at companies like Ubisoft, Rovio, King, and EA. And he now works as a games consultant at Navic. Florian, welcome to the Metacast. Hi, Nicola. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Berlin summer hasn't really picked up yet, but I'm hoping it will it will come soon. Hmm. Same in Brussels, man. I'm, I'm, I've been depressed. So, Florian, what do you find most interesting in the gaming industry these days? Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of seconding Janie there. So, because I'm mostly a systems and economy guy, so for me, it's quite interesting to see what happens with uh, you know blockchain and NFTs and supply owned economies because you know it, it opens up new, completely new worlds and kind of like new horizons of how gaming will be perceived by players in the future and how much ownership they have. It also opens up some very interesting sort of philosophical avenues of like, you know, how, how much of real life conventions we bring into worlds that, you know, are essentially designed to escape from these. <laughs> so uh, I think this is a very, very interesting area in games right now. Mm-hmm. All right. We're definitely having you on when we're discussing that. So finally, what game are you currently playing? I'm currently a bit obsessed with Crusader Kings 3. I just kind of love the emergent storytelling that comes out of it when you're a 
disinherited firstborn comes back to kill your second child uh, that you conceived with his sister or something. Uh, it just creates this, like <laughs> a real life Game of Thrones feeling. That's just great. Nice, nice. All right. I'd also like to welcome Matej Lansaric joining us from Slovakia. Over the past decade, Matej has successfully launched and scaled 24 games globally with a host of different companies. And so he is our in-house user acquisition expert. And next to that, I'm also pretty sure that Matej has the coolest tattoos in the industry. <laughs> Matej, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. So Matej, what do you find most interesting in the gaming industry these days? Yeah, Jedi stole my thunder a bit because I I think uh, the most interesting part is just like how the games industry is changing so rapidly and, and quickly and uh, and how we are actually really able to adapt quickly as well. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, that's that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And what game are you currently playing? Uh, well, currently I'm playing uh, Battle Legion and Dark for Heroes on Mobile and uh, oh. Apex Legends Wink. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, and yeah. waiting for that to appear on mobile, which should mm. be hopefully soon, right? Hopefully, yeah, but uh, <laughs> kind of doubt it. All right, and then finally, we have Manu joining us from Cologne. Manu is the co-founder of Navic, and he will be hosting the episode with me. He will be helping me out. So, Manu, how are your chess games going? Actually, I had a pretty bad weekend of chess. I lost pretty yeah. much everything. Mm. <laughs> I thought I thought I should apply the strategy of, you know, uh, playing fast and losing more so that I get more shots on goal and learn. But I think with every mm. additional attempt, I just kept like unlearning more and I mm. kept feeling more stupid. So, but, but yeah, I'm getting back into it. <laughs> At least there, there's an ELO system that will bring your score down. So you match some similarly skilled opponents. Yeah. Plus my brother-in-law made a lot of fun of me just losing mm. like that so <laughs> <laughs> and so manu have you figured out the insane retention metrics of fortnite on the nintendo switch already or uh, still a mystery not yet still a mystery uh waiting for anyone to still reach out and let me know but yeah i continue to look and i don't know maybe on episode three i shall have yeah. uh, some results listener i think he's talking to you you need manu, to where, where do you even look for this type of data for switch is that available i do not know as yet that's part of my searching journey okay cool all right so before we get into the topics of today i would like to remind you our listener to send any questions remarks call outs or jokes to metacast at navic.co because uh, we'd very much like to include you in these podcasts as well now finally let's get into it manu would you do us the honor of introducing our first topic? Yeah, definitely. So as everybody knows, we are now kind of in the early innings of the post IDFA world and saying that Apple's uh, new privacy features, you know, rocked the entirety of the ad tech ecosystem would really be an understatement uh, at this point. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. Uh, and uh, like uh, Mate said, you know, uh, we adapt uh, as uh, as the gaming industry. So, so today we're kind of here to talk about uh, a pretty juicy topic about the future of uh, UA and more specifically this idea of player networks and how player networks is kind of could be seen as a new UA paradigm in a privacy first world. 
So yeah, juicy topic and you know, let's dig in. To kick it off, first question to Jane, what is a player network <laughs> and what is what isn't it? So <laughs> Sure. And this is, you know, my definition I guess of player network, which is really it's a company's ability to create player-led flows. And that spans across <clears throat> games, game types and platforms. Examples of this would be, you know, even like look at EA. We have casual sports racing you know sims the brand we've got star wars so rpg activision is another example and you're even seeing you know even app 11 if we talk about app 11 they have lying studios right so casual hyper casual plus the machine zone side you know interestingly too if you look at lion you know, 300 apps in the app store congregate voodoo you know that they combine for about 270 almost 300 too so and all of those kind of circulate players through those different games so it even outside of just one one you know company those three kind of have their own player network in a sense um so that's that's kind of how i really define it is it's player driven it's it's organic in nature in terms of you can't force a player to play a game that they either don't like, like if you can't force a match three player to play a game that they don't like, uh, or a genre that they're not interested in. An example of that is a lot of American football fans are not fans of EPL. <laughs> so as much as you might want to cross sell them into maybe FIFA or, you know, and DraftKings have them bet on EPL, it's probably not going to happen if they're, you know, if they're a big Patriots fan or, you know, the Jets or something like that. So that's kind of how I define it. Makes sense. So, um, I mean, you kind of you kind of touched on this uh, in in your introduction about what a player network is, but could you maybe get a little deeper into you know what are the key benefits of uh, having a player network in yeah. a company? There's a few. I think the the low hanging fruit is that you know things about the player already if they're part of your network. Most gaming companies have some sort of ID system, whether that's associated player ID or even associated temporary ID you know, which becomes more and more important when you don't have IDFA, or if that's not the main, you know, kind of key that you're using across all of your different um, apps. IDFV doesn't go away too. So if you have players within your same developer account, IDFV is persistent across those, those apps, which is obviously helpful. It's also to some degree cheaper if you actually do it right. It's more expensive if you don't. And I think that a lot of times too, when you think about upselling, cross-selling players across a network, just like managing LTV, you have to also manage the lifetime cost of that player. So if you're constantly pushing promos, sales, offers of that player, you have to associate the cost, uh, the value that you're giving away for that player to do different actions within different games, which I think also not a lot of growth teams do well. Uh, they kind of only focus on the the upside rather than well, what's the true cost of what we just gave away to yeah, this let's player. Yeah, let's not play. Let's not talk about true costs, of course. <laughs> So we kind of do a shit job at it too, where we interrupt or disrupt a player. I think the natural, not the natural exit point too of a player. Players not doesn't play a game, you know, all day long. So what, the natural exit point, and then what's that? What's the, the next best step essentially for that for that player? How closely are you working there with actually, you know, game designers to kind of figure out what what is actually true cost overall in in a game, and also what's exit points that are good? Yeah, frankly, at EA. We haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> At DraftKings, we did, or we we you know we had a an association where we used that DraftKings ID to associate all all promos and offers to that player across daily fantasy sports, sportsbook, casino. So I look at, 
you know, social casino companies as well as gambling doing it well on the back end where they have tooling and they also have better use capabilities to associate those promos and offers, which I think is also though why that that genre in particular is is promo led. You typically if you're playing, you know, sports book or you're in a social casino game, you probably are bombarded by promos and offers, but that that is a promo led genre and I think that it's kind of also been that way because those growth teams have figured out have worked with the product team to figure out not not even just like from a lifecycle management perspective what's the best promo offer for this user but also how to you know persist th that history and create a better yeah better segmentation uh what is also what is the economy to what is the contribution to that player so similar not just the promos or offers but if they're losing money in your game and that money's going to a, a winning player too there's a contribution that that player is providing to the overall ecosystem economy to the game. Makes sense. All right. So I guess, yeah, kind of like maybe then, you know, in a nutshell, essentially a player network is a huge collection of players across a large portfolio of games that span across multiple genres. And once you actually have this, the ability for of the company to actually cross-sell these players between the games and essentially have even more control on their quote-unquote owned uh, user base in a way would that would that uh, be a correct characterization yeah I think that you know in the gaming gaming in general we've done a good job of what I would consider like vertical expansion where we reskin games that have worked in the past but <laughs> and but that that you know that that runway is short it uh, you cannibalize players at, at some point and then also there is some level of like you can only reskin a game so many times before before players either get really pissed that all you do is reskin games and i think that the more horizontal expansion of what additional genres or different types of games gameplay like a match three or an rpg or whatever but like what different types of games can we create to expand the ecosystem rather than kind of almost like over optimize you know our user base in a sense so yeah, I think a player network is becoming more of a thing with the less short-term vision of let's just reskin this game and make another version of it. Makes sense. All right. And how do you how do you think this connects back to you know this becoming even more important in a privacy-first world? Sure. I think in non-APAC it's important because we don't have a lot of game or a lot of apps that are like mega apps. Like in you know APAC, there's a lot of apps are just kind of hubs in a sense. And you can play games, you can chat, you can do a lot of things. And that hasn't really caught on as much in, you know, the U.S. or just Western countries. I'm not an expert to know why, <laughs> but because of that, there, you know, the, this idea of creating multiple games and apps within this network, I think, is kind of the the next best or, or approach to gaining insight into into users when we don't anymore. If we don't have IDFA we don't have identifiers we we don't know as much about players you know i also want to hear too from Matea, like you know with the deprecation of idfa2 it's not just the advertiser side it's the public it's the supply side it's the publisher side that is having a hard time even finding users for us and the right type of players for us and so we we are in a sense having to become you know the supply side and the advertiser side which i think is also why you're seeing the mna that you're seeing you know with zynga and app 11 and and the like so just for me to fully understand if i can just jump in um how important is for player network 
an actual network such when you know, like you sign in and you have an identity within you know the EA ecosystem versus just a community that basically anyone could raise for their game. I mean that's a good question. I guess it's hard to manage. I would say on the back end, it's hard to manage players without an ID. I think for a long time too, the you know free to play games, it was a it was taboo to think about a registration wall, a signing wall, but. I think that's becoming less of a thing because of, you know, the recent iOS changes, as well as you have games like Genshin Impact and others that are showing that you can still drive decent players and revenue and potentially a sign up or registration wall. It weeds out low value players to your ecosystem, but it, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to make a player network if you have an, a persistent ID. So I think that that's like the pros and the cons. If you if your game though is based upon ad monetization, registration walls are probably not helpful if it impacts DAO. So I think that that's also the thing is like the majority of your revenue is it coming from admon or in-app purchases, subscription or whatever. And if it's not admon, then I think that's where creating the ID associating it with a registration wall or some sort of sign up is is actually advantageous. Right. Mate, what what do you think? Why why do you think player networks are getting more important in this privacy first world? Yeah, because the the evaluation is just getting harder and harder and like properly evaluate the UA activities is well, it's going to be very uh, challenging. But, you know, like these player networks, let's uh, they were here before. I mean, I know like this now it's going to be more important, but it's like Let's think about the player networks as like one big funnel. So, you know, like channeling the, the players from one game, like usually like with like low CPI games and then distributing them into the other games and the, the whole like big portfolio. So, you know, like the bigger companies, that's their advantage. Like what's going to happen with the small companies, mid-sized companies, yeah, well, that, that's uh, that's a different story. You know? we can discuss that as well and and you know here this so what how i'm thinking about like these these funnels and uh, the player network so if you remember like a couple of months years ago like there were this trend of fake ads channeling the players for like super low cpis and fake ads to the games and then eventually they stick so basically like this player network is just the fake ads evolution <laughs> Basically, it's like, it's the same principle. Come on, it's just the funnel, and you're funneling the the players to games, and then uh, based on the like segmentations, then um, channeling or cross promoting to other games. Mate, do you think that the the strategy of driving players into lower CPI type of games, and then basically cross selling them into other games, is it a all or nothing thing where like you're trying to take those users into those maybe higher performing games, or is it like so are there feeder games where you, you don't really like farm as much uh, or you don't spend as much effort? Or like, how, how do you like, with a small team of two, I'm thinking like, how do you yeah. spend your energy and time and strategy across, you know, managing feeder and then kind of farming style type? Yeah, well, um, I would take a look at the, the whole portfolio and like what is the game that I want to like feed from the other games. And usually like when talking about the hyper casuals, obviously now, those are the low CPI games, but I don't think the, the the whole audience of the players can be used for all the games. So basically, I know like it's the same thing as like with Facebook interest, for example, and targeting. So I'm targeting. I found out like the RPG players are also um, they also like let's say 4x. So basically, I'm using 4x um, 
interest for RPG game. And this is a very similar thing. So I just want to like dissect the, the audience and try to think like what would be like which segment would be the best to fit to the game I want. Makes sense. So uh, let's let's uh, peel like another layer uh of you know this uh, this idea which is essentially so you know as as an idea it's uh, it's pretty big it's quite exciting but thinking about it more from like a creation perspective what what do you guys think are kind of you know the key drivers to creating a strong player network and how how does one or how does a company strategically think about uh creating these i mean you can't force anything that's not organic and flow so if players aren't naturally discovering or playing the the games that you have within your portfolio or you acquire within your portfolio or whatever then you can't force players to play things that they either don't like uh whether it be a game type like a forex game or a match three or whatever or like i said like sports right like certain sports cer- certain players just won't play those sports i think there's like arrows too that go one way but not the other so similar to like what mitahe said there's feeder games they'll go one way but the games don't reciprocate. A lot of those games don't won't be great about sending users back to the other games, which is fine, but I think that's also where there's some misnomers of like, well, you know, arrows go both ways. It's like, no, there's some that go this way that then don't go back that way. And um, I think that th- that is where it gets complicated too, is who gets credit for the conversion, who gets credit for the revenue too within those networks. At least at EA, we have multiple, right? We have multiple studios, multiple product teams too. And the operational implications of a player network mean that you have to incentivize product teams the right way too, so they don't get pissed that they're they're yeah, they don't want to give up their their players definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of have to have everyone on board with the strategy before you even start implementing anything. So if that's the strategy, everyone's got to be on board and incentivized properly, or otherwise you're not going to have the right you know, the right mechanisms, the right features, the right um, triggers to get players from one game to another, because kind of even to what uh, Florian, and sorry if I butcher your name, I'm American, so I don't have any <laughs> accent ability. But what he said earlier is, you know, around, you know, how close a growth team and a product team work together. I think that's that's the key too. If you have a UA team that doesn't talk to the product team, you can't really manage a player network well. Like it just doesn't work. You can do UA, you can do new user growth, and that's fine. You bring users in, but player networks require a lot of product, you know, strategy too. Like where do we, where in the game do we actually do the cross sell, and is that the right point in time? And and how are we testing that and optimizing to that, and making sure it doesn't impact the the game itself and the experience that a player has, and that it's actually incremental and not like distracting or cannibalizing the the overall, you know revenue that we would realize. And also like, uh, let's count with the data teams as well. I mean, thinking about the churn point where uh, like all the players just drop out, like, or thinking about the churn prediction and then at the right time, just send that player to the other game. That's also like really important. Got it, got it, okay. So like a lot of, a lot of what you guys said also, I mean, cross promotion must be a big part of this and it almost feels like you know cross promotion the industry is kind of split on cross promotion and its uh, validity some people have seen it work really well some people have not and yeah i was i was wondering like you know i guess it it does sound like 
as player networks start to become more uh, more important paradigm in this uh, privacy first world the importance of then cross promotion and understanding how to cross promote correctly also now becomes more important so first of all like is the industry uh, being split on this uh, really is that even correct uh, or uh, have you guys actually seen uh, cross promotion to work uh, successfully and if yes you know how does one kind of like turn the tide on uh, on uh, cross promotion in general Look, um, basically, I'm not sure like why the crossbow had has some like the bad reputation. Maybe from the people who actually like never tried it before or like done it really wrong, in a wrong way. And well, it's always easy to say it doesn't work, but it's uh, it's really hard to to make it work. But to a certain extent, uh, it, it it works, and I've seen it working pretty well, even cross promoting from different games, uh, different genres. Um, to, to different genres as well, like not in, in the single genre. You know, you need to do your homework, look at the, the, the audience, the player segments, what do they like, like what do they play in, like not just looking at it in only like one one view. So like I said, like the RPG to, to Forex or like female audience. So basically match free, I don't know, like 45 female, like what else do they play? Well, slots, of course, <laughs> of course. So it's like you just need to find the the winning connection between the these games and then cross promote them. It sounds easy. I mean, it's it's super hard to to crack this, but when you crack it up, that's it. It just works. Yeah, I think to Matthias' point, I think it's done. It's been done pretty poorly for a few reasons. I think historically for UA, it's like segmentation or trying to cut campaigns too granularly is inefficient. Like in terms of it's too expensive doesn't scale. And so to think about it, it's like, you almost have to retrain your brain to go from, instead of like casting the wide net and like bringing all this, you know, all these users in, then you got to go inwards again to the product. You're like, okay, wait, now I got to actually be granular and think about segmentation and think about what's the right promo or the offer for that, for that audience and, and cut up all those audiences into the proper segments to make sure that we know how to like graduate segment you know this segment up in terms of revenue contribution or whatever your however you segment those users and yet you probably won't get it right on the first time or the second time and i think that's also the the bad rap too is it's not easy it's not turnkey you can't just give money to a partner and expect it to work it's it actually takes a lot of effort internally to do and so when you kind of compare it to ua the juice is worth the squeeze, but the juice isn't as big <laughs> sometimes. It's just in terms of, it's a lot of tedious incremental steps. And I think that that's where it, sometimes it gets better. On top of players can get pissed if the if the experience is off. If it's interruptive, if you send them to a, a game that they hate, like then all of a sudden you go from having a player that actually likes playing one of your games to being pissed about <laughs> this other game <laughs> that you never should have sent them to. So yeah, I think that it's complicated and it, it can fail for a lot of reasons. And I think that's also why a lot of people don't want to touch it or haven't, or just say it doesn't work. Yeah, right. I, I remember one experience when we were launching a game, it was like ancient history, but um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, uh, it was a simulation game. And then um, we had other simulation game and then adventure game. And then we just obviously discussed this with the game teams. Everybody was pissed that they don't want to give up the players, usual. <laughs> but then managed to actually make it work and uh we were pretty surprised that uh, the players from adventure game that landed in the simulation game performed as good as from the simulation game then 
uh, we tried it out again, we failed, but then we tried out third time and we make it work. So it's all about failing and then like learning from those fails and uh, make it work the next time. Right. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. There's actually uh, one one thing or one topic that, uh, you know, Janie uh, touched on in her answer, which is essentially like after this cost promotion is successful, then, you know, uh, connecting this player to the right offer or the right post cross promotion experience in the new game. And that's essentially, you know, that opens up the discussion of uh, in-game personalization. And in-game personalization has also kind of, um, not everyone really does it. And partially because, you know, the resources don't exist for all the stu studios to actually do it properly. But do you guys see like this, you know, in-game experience personalization also uh, becoming more important and, you know, hand in hand as player networks are becoming more important? Yes, I think Apple's made it harder. Um, so where personalization going into a game or, or an app could be triggered off of a user ID or a campaign ID. So for instance, let's say that you had a campaign, you know, that was for the Patriots and then, um, you know, a player uh, comes into the game and then what they see though is all Patriots, you know, games or highlights or whatever it is. Well, Apple basically has, has blocked that. Uh, <laughs> that is not, that is disabled now. So, so you can't create personalization at the get-go, which I think is pretty limiting on iOS and, and kind of pretty shitty to be honest. Once you have a player, great, then you can personalize uh, and, you know, and actually maybe have a little bit more personalization there. But there's, again, it kind of goes back to, to the juice is worth the screen. What's the relevancy of personalization? So offer or content, and, and there's a point at which to, it's just over-optimized. Mm. So I think that personalization at the first touch of the player was actually really important before Apple blocked campaign IDs and, and just, you know, all of those macros that we could get. Now it's more generic, you know, it's a little bit more to triggered based. So it's like, if then, then that statements and things like that, that, okay, mm. <laughs> not super exciting, but uh, yeah, it, you know, and offers and like, you can use the purchase behavior. There's, it also tends to be that players that take advantage of a sale, then only take advantage of a sale. So you also have to take that into account too, is if you lead a player down a promo or an offer, or an offer path, that they will then probably be more prone to just focusing on when those promos or offers happen rather than buying something wholesale. And that's fine, but you know, you, you just, that's the you know, opportunity loss in a sense. If, if you do come out with a lot of features, it, you have, you know, pretty robust life service uh, capability. So yeah. Right. So before before we end this uh, discussion, I have like one final question, which is well, it's, it's never ending discussion. We can talk about this for ages. <laughs> for, if only we had three three hour episodes. But <laughs> but yeah, the final question is kind of the other side of this uh, of the same coin, which is, you know, what about the companies that don't have uh, player networks to lean on? You know, how do how do they think about? uh surviving in the best way possible in this uh, privacy first world of course player networks is not the only uh way to survive so yeah what, what do you guys think about that i mean i think there's a reason that you're seeing so much MA activity at the moment yeah. you know get bought by a larger company there's one strategy um you know if you can get great opt-in rates fantastic like you know if you can focus on that amazing we don't have great opt-in rates. We have the average. We have like the industry average, which is not the majority. 
like we don't get the majority of IDFAs, right? So if you can if you can do a great job of getting that, fantastic. But if you don't do a great job of that, get bought. <laughs> like if you're coming from it. Simple. Easy as that. Easy. Yeah, yeah there you go. That's a two-prong approach there. Um, that would be my... <laughs> Or like, you know, you can't, yes, you can create different measurement frameworks. There's probabilistic uh, measurements still in MMPs. So like, if you feel like you have a pretty strong grip of reality on how things are performing with your UA, even in this post IDFA world, then fine. But if you're relying on IDFA and you can't, and you don't do a good job of getting it, then you're kind of screwed and you got to figure it out. You got to figure out what you want to do with your business. Yeah. But you know, like these uh, small size or mid-sized companies are really innovative and uh, try to bend the rules as much as they can because, well, there's no other option. No, well, get bought, but uh, uh, basically using a different like uh, scan network schema experimentation, like the pre-prompt optimizations and trying to figure it out the way and test out different things on the pre-prompt side, but also like doing some kind of like incrementality tests or just simply look at the blended approach. I mean, it's not ideal, but at least it's something. And uh, yeah, like if you get if you have the grip, and you, you can just see what's happening at least on the macro level. Makes sense. All right, so I'm gonna gonna hand it over back to uh, Nico, and I believe the second topic dovetails pretty well from the first one. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, Nico. All right. So now we're talking about UA as a tool to validate game concepts. So hypothetical scenario, I decided to start a game studio. I want to build some games, have some good, good ideas. Good for you. I Thanks, will man. cheer. For, yeah. And I'll hire you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, so basically I'm a host of a business of games podcast, you know, the Metacast. So obviously I get funded immediately. Super easy. Um, <laughs> and so I start building my team, right? I have my leadership team. Obviously I'm going to, I'm going to get some people who can actually build the games. And so now my question to Florian is, does it make sense starting a company to already include UA leadership to the core team from the get-go? Yes. I'm going to caveat that in a second. But Okay, uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Please do. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, if you, if you found the game studio, you are looking for very versatile people. You know, uh, even if they're designers, you want them to be a bit analyst or maybe even be a bit of a coder, take a prototype, whatever. So you're starting off and you just get a UA person that can't do anything but UA. It's maybe not super useful. But I, I think UA is kind of underrated in sort of the game validation, concept validation process. Thank you very much. My work here is done. <laughs> I'm only saying this because uh, Matei gives me shots afterwards. So, um, sure. All virtual. Uh, yeah, we, I get one shot for every time the word privacy first world is mentioned. But yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, because I think for a while, you know, particularly in mobile and free to play, it was a relatively open environment. Um, feels like ages ago now, but like you could you could put things out kind of based on you know some tests and some prototyping. But kind of as this ocean got less and less blue, you just had to do more and more to be sure that what you would put out actually ended up being business viable. And I think this is why why UA is becoming more and more important, particularly when you start uh, setting something up. Maybe not right at the start, but as soon as you're getting into like, hey, uh, we have an idea that we're actually comfortable with and that, that we have faith in to get someone in who can actually translate this sentiment into something that speaks market uh, and, and speaks actual users. And this is where UA comes in really, really handy already very early. 
And obviously getting mm. a good UA person is very hard, so you might as well just start looking from start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, that's true. But look, look, getting the UA person like from the get-go to the core leadership, well, look, the, the UA would just be bored as mm. fuck because, well, there's not that many things you can do from the from like start of the company. I mean, obviously you need to have these UA peeps uh, at the later stage. But you also can just talk to the to the other UA people and just hire some some like temporary work to help you with like validation of the of the UA and everything because really like there is no point like from the beginning of course like from um, later stage yes but then what I think is really important for you Nico uh, as a, as a founder you should run some UA on your own so you can better understand like how does it, how does it actually work and then you can just talk to other UA people from the industry and try to hire them eventually. Mm. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. So Florian, how has the process of game concept validation changed over the past 10 years? Yeah, I mean, as I, as I sort of said before, I mean, um, the games business, I think, has become more and more cutthroat. You know, and, and, you know, again, there was once a time where a good game concept would, would just carry you through. Um, but that's just not really the case anymore. And you know when you when you're a games designer, obviously you usually the source of the idea, usually the the spark that sets it all off. And uh, once you have something you're happy with, uh, or that your team is happy with, and you have to go and pitch it to someone who actually gives you the money. The second biggest question after do we like do we like this is will this be a surefire hit, right? Um, even with uh, you know with execs who've been working in the games industry for many many years. They will still inevitably kind of ask this question like, oh, but can you guarantee that it will just be a mega hit? To which inside I'm always kind of like thinking is like, well, if I could guarantee this, wouldn't we be talking <laughs> on my own private island right now? But um, <laughs> in, in the end, you know, uh, you need to get as close to, to guaranteeing this as you can. And, I, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, you go through these different stages where you kind of like, so I'm, I'm very keen on constant testing. Um, so as soon as you have anything you put it out there that includes art style that includes prototypes fake prototypes very very great way to kind of like validate things ideally you want to always have a test running at any stage of the development as long as you sort of sign off on the rough product direction and i think ua is kind of the next battlefield there um or it has been for a while where it actually can help you trying to validate some things with data where before you had none so what a lot of studios still do and is, is they kind of go like, cool, we've got a prototype and now we're going to put it out on some service like, you know, Playtest Cloud or something where I can see players play and do some qualitative research. And then they go like, oh, people seem kind of liking it and seem to kind of like it and they kind of move on. Uh, and then the art director comes and goes like, oh, cool, I, I know what this should look like. And, and off we go. <laughs> Um, when really already early in this process, I think, and I've, I've made personally good experience with it, to actually have a UA person going to go like, hey, what really is a useful art style for this? Can we already run some things? Can we run fake gameplay ads and see how people react? Can we can we get all this this kind of data in? And uh, I know this is there's some ambivalence. I'm pretty sure Matei will speak to that as well. But I, I've made very good experiences actually getting data back from this that then informed the gameplay or the art style of, of things we did and had a positive effect on it. But yeah, Matei maybe has other so, opinions. Yeah, no, 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 this is, this is really useful. Of course, like with these like uh, art style test and CTR test and uh, like seeing like what uh, type of the visual style actually resonate with your target audience. Yes, that's, that's super useful. But in this stage, like it's, it's really dangerous to, to make a decision based on the assumptions or, or 
I think this should work. Well, yeah, sure, you think, but let's let's look at the data actually, and then make the decision. Of course. Yeah, I, th I think we we as a as a mobile and free to play games business, we've become really really good at looking at an existing product and becoming very data driven about the decisions we make there. And you know, of the of the years, we've become quite good at it. But what we haven't had the same kind of certainty and, and uh, efficacy of this process before you actually put something out, right? And where I see this sort of the future of project validation or games validation is that we have a similar confidence in pre-release data that we sort of getting in and make decisions on than we have on like soft launch data, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that, that would be amazing. But then you need to think about like multiple things. So basically, if you're doing these CTI tests, uh, I'm just going to talk UA a, a bit more now. So let me know if you, if you don't understand anything. <laughs> uh, but like you, you're getting this CTR test and you're optimizing for link clicks. So basically that's one thing which uh, the optimization is getting you slightly different users uh, than if you're optimizing for mobile app installs. So that's, that can be pretty dangerous because then um, you are trying to calculate the CPIs you are going to get, but then, uh, well, you need to come with something else it's usually like two times or three times higher than what you see in the, the link link optimization because it's different different audience. So that can be like really misleading. As a follow-up to that, I was thinking too, like UA can be great for testing, but it also can skew and screw with product. Yeah. So <laughs> like what are some some things to avoid, I guess, in testing to make sure that you don't give any false positives or that you're limiting the false positive to a product team so that they're looking at numbers and results and things from a, you know, whether it's like scenarios, like this worst case, best case scenario type of, you know, traffic for UA, or do you just give like a, you know, this is probably 30% better than what we're going to see, or like, how do you like kind of guide product to the results? I, I always, always try to bring up like the, the past experiments and like uh, when we tested out the, the CTR tests and those campaigns and then actually the mobile app install campaigns, for example, and how those like two CPIs, calculated CPI changed to actually like the real CPI and then use this like something like a multiplier in between those. And then like saying really out loud, like, hey guys, like, okay, so this is something that you can look at, but don't take too seriously, it can change pretty rapidly when you just launch the, the MVP. And I'm always trying to push to launch at least like MVP and build out so we can actually measure the, the first CPIs and then at least like first like day one retention. I'm just kind of curious, Matteo, because obviously uh, I still think most, so my the reaction of a lot of UA people when I, when I sort of, you know, get involved with them around testing things before anything mm -hmm. is out there that does actually deliver what you just said it's very often that they're like uh oh, this is not really what i do and i feel a bit uncomfortable with it but um <laughs> because it's extra think... work it's work. <laughs> um, but do you think there's actually sort of i guess a, a sub-discipline or maybe some some extending toolbox that you guys have to actually use the skills you have in sort of traditional ua and apply this to sort of you know predictive models regarding game appeal for example Oh, well, that's a very good question. I always um, think that like this is this should be just a, a normal thing in terms of the UA. Like every UA person should should be able to just launch the the, the CTR test, the like pre uh, soft launch tests, because it's really crucial for the for the actual soft launch or like relighting the game. So in my in my world, this is like regular thing. In the real world, I guess uh, well. 
hard to say. Just you, the UA managers need to just see the the, the whole picture and not just look uh, on the on the CPI numbers and like just uh, you know, thinking out out of the box a bit. But, but do you do you think there is a, a good different measurement than say like CTIs um, or CPIs to kind of gauge early success at all? Well, uh, you don't very much have like anything else. I mean, you can just yeah, okay. So you can what you can do um, not only like measure the the CTIs and the, the CPIs or IPMs or instance per mile, but also um, try to connect that test to to a survey basically and actually ask players what they think about the, the visual style or the game or what they would expect to see in those games so you can get actually like interesting ideas for from like the game design perspective but in terms of the like the actual marketing metrics yeah everything just well you can use the fake uh, uh, fake store page and then measure like what exactly the players are doing on that fake store page those and then like click like see the conversions when they click on the button to download the game well basically it's fake so they will they will be a, a bit pissed but <laughs> you can collect those emails and then uh, get get back to them so you can yeah you can measure the conversion rate but again the conversion rate is heavily influenced by the store assets so it's it can be also very misleading so i'm always trying to look at the the ctr first and then make the decision based on that and everything that happens after they click it, it can be influenced both ways. Yeah, I'm not sure if I give you like the right answer, but I don't think there is a right answer. <laughs> well, I think I think it's always an interesting answer, as, as you know, because I, I you know I've advised like a lot of like smaller yeah. studios who don't have the big capabilities of like the big UA studios, and to yeah. to kind of for particularly those guys to kind of get means or like inspiration maybe also from this podcast to kind of go like oh cool there is actually things we can do um, yeah. or, or that we can to get to actually get some information about how likely you know, it is that this thing is actually going to fly. That's basically what I'm after. Yeah, yeah. Because we tried, like, we tried these, like, CTR tests before. And usually there is, like, definitely a winner in these visual tests. And then there are a lot of losers. So at, at least you just can exclude which way not to go. <laughs> cool. All right. I'll take that into account when I'm I'm building my game. So, yeah, that, that rounds up our episode. Janie, Matei, Florian, and Manu, I, th I thank you very much for uh for being here and sharing your knowledge and listener i thank you a lot for listening again if you have some remarks if you don't agree with what matei was talking about which could very well be the case let yeah. us know at the metacast gonna happen <laughs> there yeah exactly at the metacast at navig.co i wish everyone an amazing weekend and uh yeah let's speak again next friday cheers thank, thank you so much. Much. Thanks. Bye.